Um, hey everyone, my name is Ming, one of the ministry apprentices here at UniChurch, and definitely feeling quite encouraged after hearing some of those interviews, seeing Matt and Angel get engaged, and hearing Ross's side of the story. I knew it was going on in my head, but hearing how uh, he's transformed over these last few months. I remember thinking just uh, four or five months ago, I was thinking, man, this guy's a lost cause. Um, but, but honestly, Ross has really come a long way. It really goes to show how, how amazing God really is to work in someone's heart like that. Um, so I'm so thankful for that. Um, <laughs> um, but seriously, uh, I'm really thankful as well to be able to open up this passage with you all. This should be the last sermon I'll be sharing um, with you all as a ministry apprentice. Uh, so I hope that it's a challenging one, but also encouraging. So let me pray for that now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know you're good. Sometimes we don't see it. Sometimes we don't feel it. But we know that that's true. Help us to live out that truth. Live out knowing and having confidence in your goodness. And help us to receive your word today knowing that you do want to lovingly teach us. May our trust in you be strengthened today by your spirit through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some things in this world just don't mix. Could be waffles and, and tomato sauce. Could, could be the classic jandals and socks. Um, and it might even be certain objects uh, like your fingernails and the chalkboard. I hope imagining those things don't distract you from today's message. But today's passage also talk about two things, two things that don't mix. But unlike the things that I just listed, things that are just a preference, because, well, kids will probably happily eat anything with their waffles, and people like myself, we're, we're all good with jandals and socks. Uh, and I'm sure there are some people who appreciate painful noises, I'm talking more along the lines of, say, um, water and oil. See, see, water and oil, put them in a bottle together, oil will float to the top, water to the bottom. No matter how hard you shake it or stir it, they don't mix. There's no way to get them to, to join. It's physically impossible. And much like this, much like this illustration, um, this passage talks about two things that are incompatible, that just don't go together no matter how hard you try to put them together. This passage tells us about faith, faith and favoritism. They don't mix. They're incompatible. This passage tells us that favoritism is something that's anti-gospel and that it's a serious heart issue that Christians can easily overlook. Faith and favoritism just can't mix. Now, before digging any further... I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge something. I want to mention that many of us here today will be at different stages of our faith. Some of us might have been Christians our whole life, while others of us might be here and are just exploring Christianity, wondering, who's this Jesus guy? And as we go through this letter, the stretch of the letter in James, the next couple of weeks, we'll be hearing a few messages, uh, there's going to be quite a bit of weight. Last week we heard in chapter 1, talking about trials and stuff like that. But we didn't get to touch on the end of chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. And that, that was an important part because it was a bit of a gear change for James. 
So have a look with me at James chapter 1, verse 22 and verses 26. Let's have a look at it together. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. James is really changing gears here. He's really changing gears here and he's going to keep at this, this type of content for the next few weeks of the book. So be ready for that. And when James mentions deceiving yourself, what he's really trying to say here is, don't kid yourself. Don't deceive yourself in thinking that you're a Christian if you're, if you're just all talk. Faith, belief, isn't something that's idle. And for me, I feel somewhat uncomfortable with this because there's this tension that I'm going to try right here. I'm going to try right in this passage. Uh, there's this line where we need to take our sin seriously, our works, the things that we're doing, really taking hold of areas in our life that we can easily ignore and try justify versus seeing our sin, recognizing how broken we are, but being able to celebrate our faith and how good and merciful our God is for giving us Jesus. There's a real tension that we need to ride between seeing God's love mercy, and gift of grace, yet we should care about our actions, our works, the way that we are conducting ourselves. And I guess, I guess the thing that I'm trying to say here is, I recognize that there's going to be some of us who might be baby Christians, young Christians, people who might feel immature in their faith, and I don't want this message to look like me, here's a baby, me handing this baby a 50 kg dumbbell and saying, okay, good luck, see you later. It's not like that. But I want to encourage you all, all of us, to really trust in progress, trust in progress, and not perfection. While at the same time, I want us to feel the full weight of the text that James is trying to communicate here. As we hear this message, trust in progress and not perfection. Okay, let's, let's get into it. As we look at this topic of favoritism, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of history behind it. Uh, and all of it, it'll look different for all of us. We struggle with it in different ways. But uh, I break down this passage into three general principles. Uh, firstly, what favoritism tells us about how we're seeing ourselves. What favoritism tells us about how we're seeing other people. And then ultimately, how God sees us. How do we want God to see us? So firstly, what favoritism tells us about ourselves. Have a look with me at James chapter 2. Verse 1 to 4. should be on the screen. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a, wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So I thought I might mention, as I woke up this morning, I was thinking about this, the message and thought about what I was going to wear. And I thought I might show up in filthy rags or my PJs just to help the illustration along, but thought I'd play it safe. <laughs> anyway, so, so what James is basically saying here is Christians, fellow believers, they don't show favoritism. And he adds this hypothetical example here because 
Because he's really wanting to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Because James isn't talking about, oh, my, my favorite color is this, or my favorite flavor of ice cream is this. No, no, no. He's not even saying you're not allowed to have close friends or close group of friends. He's not saying that at all. He adds this example so that he can know, we can all know what he's really calling out. Favoritism, partiality, picking and choosing who we want to sit next to, talk to, treating people a certain way because they look wealthy, they look young or old, because of their clothing, because of their weight, their gender, the color of their skin, or even their attractiveness. Looking at someone at face value, the book cover, and giving some kind of special treatment. Isn't that a challenging thing? Because don't we all do that? Don't we find that there's a certain group of people that's just easier to do life with? Don't we find that there's other groups of people that are just, just, just harder to do life with? It just takes more work, takes more energy. It feels like it sucks the life out of us. You see a certain type of person walk in, and you just kind of kind of avoid interacting with them. You might not even know them at all, but you just, you just do it. And this is a serious heart issue, a heart issue that will look different for different people. But what this passage tells us, and I found this part really helpful, it's a really helpful part, is that if you, if you see yourself, if you look at yourself as a Christian, and you see yourself as someone that holds on to, verse 1, believes in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, then you simply can't show favoritism. Because here's the thing, here's the thing. What's going on here is that if right now, right now if you see yourself as a believer, it means that you're believing in this glorious being, a glorious being who dwells in this unapproachable light. The Bible tells us this light is, is just so amazing that if we, we, when we just look at it, we just can't do anything but stand in awe. A light so amazing that if we were to look at it in our human flesh, we'd just, we'd just collapse and die. And James is saying here, if you believe that there's Jesus Christ, someone that glorious, that infinitely big and great, that, then you should understand of all people that, that there's God and then there's people, not different levels of people. There's God and then there's, there's people who are made in his image. How could we even think to lift up another person when we believe in something that big, that infinite? Now listen, favoritism, it's going to happen. There's certain people on this earth that wherever they go, they're going to get special treatment. Then there's other people who, who wherever they go, they're going to get rejected. And yes, it, it does suck, but it's going to happen. But what's not okay is that when they come to church, when they come to our meeting, and the same thing happens. Let's, let's think, of, think of, say, the royals. Should be a photo on the screen. This is relevant. They were just in New Zealand. Harry and Megan. If Harry and Megan walked through those doors, visiting church, and a couple minutes later, another stranger came into church, visiting church for the first time as well, who are you going to say hi to? Who's going to get the better treatment from us? Would they just get the same treatment as they would out in the world? A really good test that I found was asking myself, 
am I talking to this person just because I can get something from them or because I actually love them? Would I talk to Prince Harry because I can say, oh, um, this hand, he shook Prince Harry's hand. Would I, would I not talk to someone new at church because I'm thinking, there's no benefit to me. I don't even know if they're going to come back next week. If someone rocked on up for the first time, they know full well of how the world sees them. They're living in it. But whatever it is, whether it's rejection because they're homeless, we've had homeless people here at Uni Church, or special treatment because they're famous, if they come into our meeting and are treated just the same out in the world, can we really call ourselves Christians? This person might be coming in here hoping, these Christians, maybe, maybe I can fit in because they believe in a glorious Lord, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe when I come in here, they'll, they'll actually see me as another person and actually care about my eternal well-being. That's what they think about when they see me. When a church starts looking like the rest of the world, it's no longer a church. It's just another club, <clears throat> another social club. And I've had people come up to me and say, man, church, that was such a weird or foreign experience. And the thing is, I can say to them, absolutely, church should be a foreign experience for someone when they come. But the thing is, it shouldn't be foreign or alien in the way that it's, it's, it's weird or uncomfortable, it should be foreign in the sense that it's not like any other place in this world. Unlike the world, we don't show favoritism. We love people, and we actually care about people's eternal destiny. And here's the thing. As we look at ourselves and think about favoritism, verse 4, when people show partiality and treat people simply at face value, they're actually putting themselves in the position of God. Not only are you under misunderstanding, not, not seeing how glorious Jesus really is, but when you show favoritism, you actually see yourself sitting in the judgment seat. When you show favoritism, you're, you're trying to play God. You're deciding who's worth your time or what that person is really like. You're deciding if this is going to be a good conversation or not. You're saying the yes or no for that person. So while we might see favoritism out in the world, out there, it's not okay, okay in here amongst us in our meeting. We should be different. Believers don't live in ignorance of God. We believe in His glory. We believe that there aren't different levels of people before a glorious God. Ask yourself, where are you, where are you tempted to show favoritism? Tempted to judge who is worth spending your time on. For me, there was a real temptation to, and I say this to my shame, there was a real temptation for me to spend more time or favor those who are supporting me financially. Or perhaps it's, it's people who I can openly see serving in church heaps. I even did that with Ross where I thought he was a lost cause. And that was a, that's a serious point. And how, how wrong is that? Who was it for me to judge that? I can be tempted to judge people based on what I see and not really what's going on underneath. I don't know how much that person is laboring for God in the workplace. 
I don't know how spiritually hungry someone really is. I don't know the financial circumstance of someone. Yet, something inside of me is still tempted to show favoritism. What about you? Where are you tempted to show favoritism? A common one I see nowadays is is to justify favoritism with your personality type. You might be thinking, oh, I'm, a, I'm an ISTJ or I'm an ENFP. Therefore, I'm allowed to behave this way. I'm allowed to sin. You say to yourself, oh, I, I just don't get along with certain personality types. Or it's, it's just my personality type, that's how I am. Your personality type is not an excuse for your sin. What about, what about clicks? What sort of exclusive groups are forming here amongst us at Uni Church? Is our church starting to look homogenous? Are there people groups that would be uncomfortable to sit here amongst us? Would they want to come back? Maybe it's people with mental disabilities, people who might be seen as social outcasts in the world. Would people with lower socioeconomic statuses fit in with us? Whatever tempts you into favoritism, wealth, race, age, physical health, gender, whatever it is, Satan, Satan loves to find that one area that you'll be tempted and use it to pull you away. This is a very real struggle. There are many of us here who will struggle with favoritism, including myself. Ask yourself, am I just talking to this person for my own benefit? Because it makes me comfortable? Because I might get something from this person? Or do I actually love that person? Christians don't show favoritism because they don't see themselves as judge, but they believe in a glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so now we've got our head around the issue a bit. I'm going to spend some time thinking about how are we actually looking at people? Do we see people how God sees people? Or do we see people as just how the world sees people? Have a look with me at James chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. should be on the screen. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom of God that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Riches and poverty. Not only is this an area related to favoritism, a really common area that trips people up, it actually is a central theme to the whole book of James. James chapter 1 mentions the rich and the poor. This chapter, chapter 2, mentions it. And chapters 4 and 5 will touch on it later on as well. It's basically throughout the entire book. And to really understand this, to understand this, we need to widen our lens to see what the Bible means when it talks about the poor. Does, how does God see wealth and poverty? Because you see, the Bible looks at riches, material wealth, as a sort of obstacle. It's an obstacle. In Matthew 19, check it out later, Jesus talks about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Material wealth is essentially a blocker from someone seeing their spiritual poverty. Whereas material poverty, the poor, is actually seen as a blessing in the Bible. A kind of, it's kind of an extra opportunity to trust in God. A visible, tangible piece of evidence of the spiritual poverty underneath. But the question is, so what is, what is this spiritual poverty? 
So spiritual poverty isn't where you go, oh, I'm so spiritually dry, I can't seem to hear, see, or feel God. No, no, no. Spiritual poverty is a, is a sort of humility, this kind of modesty where you realize you have a deep need for God, you need Him. And when you're in spiritual poverty, you realize you need God, and it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing. In Jesus' own words, Luke, verse, Luke 6, verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. But the exact same line in Matthew 5, verse 3, same line, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And so what James is doing in our passage, and throughout his whole book, he's taking the same idea and helps us to see that the poor in this world, they're blessed because they have more reason to trust and depend on God. And that's a great thing. This doesn't mean that wealthy people can't realize their deep need for God. But there's just more in the way, more obstacles from actually seeing that. So let me, let me illustrate something for you guys. You know those days in school where you'd have a two-team sport? Two-team sport and you'd pick two captains. Two captains will pick their teams. And then there's this typical scenario where one per- you, you, everyone would get picked in some order. And one person would be like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pick, the, pick the fastest kid. And then this, this captain would be like, oh yeah, I'll pick the tallest kid. And then this person here would be like, oh, I'll pick the strongest kid. And you're like, oh man, I got the best team. And then towards the end, one of the nerdier kids would get perched because he's wearing glasses. And then and someone would be like, oh, okay, I'll pick the skinny one. And then the last one was always, always the chubby one, which was me. There should be, a, should be a photo on the screen. I couldn't find a younger photo of me, but may this be evidence that I was, my baby fat lasted a long time. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. God, for God's team, he doesn't look out for the best athlete. He doesn't decide based on the richest or smartest person. He isn't even necessarily keen on the most convincing speakers. He picks ordinary, imperfect people, people who know, who realize that they have nothing to offer before God. That's what God is looking out for of his team. We see that throughout the entire Bible's history. God's after people who who know that they're entirely dependent on God for their salvation and their life. They know that their affluence, their wealth, isn't because they might have worked mega hard and that's, that's all that it was, as if the poor aren't trying to work as hard. It's people that know that whatever gifts and talents that they might have, they're, they're all ultimately from God and His goodness. And we, what we see in the Bible is that humility is a key thing God is after. Now, I'm not trying to say here, God doesn't pick good athletes or he doesn't pick wealthy people or smart people. This doesn't mean that there can't be rich people who are also rich in faith. It's, it's just rare. We're typically complacent. We've got so much stuff. We believe we've, we've built up this material security. We, we've earned it. We think we've worked the hardest, and, and the poor, you know, they just don't work as hard. We've got to outbeat them. We're tempted to think, I'm, I'm good where I am. I'm comfortable. I don't need some God. I don't need hope. There's all this other stuff to do and to distract us. So, so what's happening here is James is really getting us to reflect. When we show favoritism, do we understand that about the gospel? Because when you show favoritism, it sure doesn't seem like it. 
Are we tempted to try suck up to the world to what the world sees as attractive and good? Are we tempted to keep brothers and sisters at arm's length because the world thinks they're weak or that they're weird or socially awkward? The marginalization we might feel by associating with Christians, those who see their spiritual poverty, isn't something to run from. We don't live because we need something from this world. We don't live for this life alone. As a believer in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you're always going to be counterculture to the culture of this world. Every time. Jesus is never going to be so cool that the whole world thinks it's cool. We're not called to be liked by this world. We're called to preach Christ. To love our neighbor as ourselves and to care about their eternal destiny. But, but be careful though. James isn't going here, take your favoritism, your partiality, and put it on the poor as if it's somehow way better to be poor and hating on the rich. That'd be a mistake. He's going, take your partiality and throw it out the window. This, this shouldn't mix with our faith. No Christian is exempt from showing favoritism. We need to keep guarding ourselves against it. And it really does slip under the radar so easily. We can easily justify it, justify our actions and get away with it. Our minds become calibrated to show favoritism. We might not even realize, be realizing we're doing it. Eventually, we'll start looking at someone and a split second later, we've already made a call about them. We grow numb to our favoritism. But ask yourself, what, what lens are you wearing when you show favoritism? When you see a person, what do you see as beautiful? Is it, is it what God has chosen to bless? The person that is faithful? The person that hopes, trusts, depends on God? Or is it the person who's wealthy and gifted, but simply leans on their own pride and strength? God wants you to see through his lens, see what he thinks is beautiful. But in our favoritism, we keep choosing to put on the lens of this world. What is favoritism saying about how you see other people? So we've had a look at what favoritism says about how we look at ourselves and how we look at other people, but I'm going to spend the rest of my time just zooming out a bit and wanting to see how do we actually want God to look at us? How does God look at us? Let's have a look. James chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So, so James starts off this chunk by talking about the royal law. Uh, and if we look back at the Gospels, Luke chapter 10 or Mark chapter 9 or chapter 12, uh, Jesus talks about the same royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. And, he, and what he's doing is he's elevating this command above all other commands in the Bible. And what we find in those chapters is that Jesus essentially uses this as a way to summarize the commandments seen in the Old Testament. Not to, not to mention the first one, where, which was loving God with your soul, all your soul, strength, and heart. It's a big call, big one. But, but what James is trying to do here is, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like this. Some of us come here every Sunday. We go through the motions. We, we're, we're part of a connect group. And we do our usual serving whenever we're rostered on. We'll happily take Lord's Supper like, whenever it's on, like it will be on later on. It's all good, all that good stuff. But, but here's the thing. When we think about our sin, 
when we learn about sin or needing to confess it, we might be tempted to think, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done anything illegal or broken any major law. You might even think to yourself, I'm not in bad shape here, especially when I look at the rest of the world. There's some bad stuff out there. I'm I'm pretty good. But James, he's preemptively calling that out and going, so what if you haven't killed anybody? So what if you haven't committed adultery or, or broken any major law? If you've shown partiality, shown favoritism, you've broken the royal law and sinned against God. If you've discriminated, judged people at face value, avoided certain people groups, selectively chosen who you sit next to or talk to because of how they look, you're living in rebellion against God. That's how you're living. And this, this can just feel relentless, can't it? It can feel like we'll never be good enough. Well, at least that's how I felt when I looked at this. It's true. We're so sinful, we're broken. And our works, the things that we do, they're just, they're just filthy rags before a massive God. But the passage doesn't end on just trying to make us feel bad. That's not what James is trying to do. James goes on to say, do you want to be judged by your works or do you want to be shown mercy? How do you want God to look at you? Have a look, James chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what's happening here is that James is challenging us to think, how are you loving yourself? And therefore, how are you loving others? Okay, here's the thing. Here's the thing, okay. When we think about loving your neighbor as yourself, do you love being shown judgment? showing discipline, or do you love being shown mercy? Because one thing that I do know is that Christians definitely love being shown mercy. That's why we're Christian. (laughs) We believe that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our works, but he sees Jesus and his blood spilled and body broken on that cross. We believe that our salvation is not something we've simply earned or gained or deserved, but that God has shown us mercy, and that's what we love. But regardless of right now, you're a believer in Jesus or not, we're all going to stand before God at some point, and we'll need mercy at that point. Because God's going to go, he's going to go, okay, let's, let's go through the commands, the way that I intended you to live, and he'll be like, let's see here, honor your father and mother. How'd you, how'd you go doing that? Did you do that perfectly? Or, or you shall not bear false witness. Ever, ever lied before? He'll whip out a movie of your life and sit next to you and watch it with you. Your thoughts, your actions, your attitudes. And he's going to be like, okay, so why don't you, why don't you talk to that guy? Why, why did you talk to that person? Is your answer going to be sufficient at that point? We're all going to need mercy at that point. I hope that you're thinking that. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're stumbling right now, this isn't me saying that God is demanding perfection. That's not what I'm saying. But what I hope we can all see is that we need a lot of mercy. And how much mercy have we been shown in Jesus Christ? 
If you're sitting here and you're claiming to be a Christian, you see yourself as a Christian, if you're hearing all this and you don't really care about anything I've said, you have no intention of applying this to your life, no conviction, then don't deceive yourself. Don't kid yourself and claim that you're a Christian. You need to define yourself pr- properly. But again, please, please don't hear this as me saying God is demanding perfection. No, no, no. Remember, progress not perfection. That's what God's after. We can rest in that because James talks about this law of freedom. Two seemingly contradictory words. They don't normally go together, law and freedom. But when he talks about this law of freedom, he's actually talking about the gospel. At the cross of Christ, God demonstrates perfect judgment, justice under the law, but at the same time, He demonstrates perfect love, mercy, the freedom we feel when we receive mercy and judgment is coming. Judgment and mercy literally cross over at the cross of Christ. That's what we're under. We're no longer slaves to sin, bowing down down and giving every breath to this world. We aren't slaves to a dull moralism, trying to please some tyrannical God. We aren't given a command that says, this is what favoritism is. You're not allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that, and you have to do this. That's not what it is. God doesn't just want you to look godly. He wants you to actually be godly and be changed from within. Favoritism is a heart issue. God wants you to be able to take the principles we've learned today and actually apply them to every season of life. Whatever changes may come, whatever new things crop up, that stop you from loving people the way that you'd like to be loved. We're never going to be perfect in this life, but we can freely pursue progress. While there is a certain judgment to come for us all, Christians are safe in God's mercy and grace. In Jesus Christ, mercy overrules judgment every time. So, as we reflect on favoritism, I hope that we can see that this is a serious gospel issue. So ask yourself, do I see myself as a believer in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Or do I see myself as a judge? Do I look at people at how God sees people? Or do I look at people at how the world sees them? Do I realize how much mercy I need? Do I love being shown mercy? Or am I okay to be judged by my works? Christians don't show favoritism, but instead loves their neighbors as themselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are impartial. You're unbiased. You show no favorites. We come before you today as people who are impartial, who do struggle with favoritism, and we keep falling short. So as we see that, we thank you for showing us mercy. We love being shown mercy. And despite how unpleasant we can be, we are so thankful you still chose us to give us Jesus. As you reveal to us our spiritual poverty, help us to, to change our attitude towards favoritism. Really do reveal to us where we might be doing it and help our minds to not grow numb to it. 
We are so thankful that in Jesus Christ, you chose to show us mercy and not judgment. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.